0: Before we study God's word, let's pray once more. Lord God, we thank you for this portion of your word that we have had read for us this morning. As we come to study it now, we pray that we would see those wonderful spiritual truths, those wonderful reminders for how we are to live before you even today. We ask that your spirit would work in us to this end, that we might grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we um, look at 1 Samuel 21 through to 22 verse 5, uh, particularly one of the things that stood out to me as a kid was verses 10 through to the end of uh, through to verse 15 of chapter 21. David running away. Now it's one of those stories that wasn't one of my most easily recalled stories about David when I was growing up. But as soon as somebody would tell me about this and the Sunday school teachers would say, what do you guys know about this? And being in a class full of boys probably wasn't a great idea. We'd all reenact David acting dopely. Uh, David acting like a madman. The drill would start, would be scratched. It was horrible. I feel very sorry for our Sunday school teachers. And, And for a long time, that's probably about as far as I ever went looking at this passage. There's almost this funny, humorous story within 1 Samuel. I mean, things are bad. Saul's trying to kill David, and David's putting on a performance over here. Uh, That's really all that I really got to. But clearly I'm far more mature now. I wouldn't do something so silly to reenact that. But there is a lot more in this passage to it. There there is so much in this passage that it's just wonderful to look at it. David, There's concerning things as well. You've got David, who is the up-and-comer, in Israel, he leaves Israelite lands for a time. Probably not a great thing. David, the capable commander of troops who has been wise, who has been faithful to God and what he has done, who has been steadfast in what he does, seems to have a, a bit of a crisis of faith and have to put on a, a play act as a madman. David, who has found safety in God alone and experienced the provision and protection of God alone seems to look elsewhere for safety. There's things here that, this chapter, particularly chapter 21, raise a lot of questions for us. Now, the reason we've gone into the first five verses of chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, is there's some resolution to those things when we get there. Now, we are picking up, of course, immediately after chapter 20. It seems to me that there hasn't been much of a break in time between those things. And of course, in chapter 20, we confirmed what we had a suspicion of in chapter 19. And the suspicion was that Saul had a now permanent, not fleeting, but a permanent desire to kill David. That David was going to be removed from the picture by Saul if Saul was given even half an opportunity to do it. Uh, Through the sad events of what should have been a celebration feast, uh, Jonathan discovers for his friend David that Saul truly does intend to kill him. Leads into 21, where David is going to be pursued by Saul. Where David is effectively now a fugitive. He's on the run. Of course, we pick up chapter 21. We see David respond to this threat of of death that he now lives under. As we look at our first point, beginning at verse 1, we see the priest's protection. Now, in this, David has, as we've already mentioned, realized that uh, life as he knew it was not going to continue. Things are changing for David, and that change means that he is on the run. Now, we consider the, the life that David has lived up to now. He's a man who's not entirely unfamiliar with dangerous situations, is he? From his boyhood, he faced lions, he, he faced bears, he protected his father's flock from those fearsome creatures. He, he killed fearsome creatures. We see him make that national appearance in some ways, where he's been present for Saul leading up to it, but when Goliath is threatening the, Phil- the, the Israelite camp, And he fought Goliath. He ran at Goliath. He's a brave man who's not, he's not unused to dangerous situations. Saul has made him a captain of men and he's been successful in battles. It's noted a number of times, not always in great detail, but David has been successful in battle. He knows danger. But in each one of those situations, each time David has faced danger up until now, He's had somewhere to go back to. He's had a home. He's had a home that he can return to. And that that's no longer the case as we pick up today. There's a significant change in, in things for David's life from here. Now, David does some, I think to put it kindly, he does some questionable things in that chapter. However, even within that, He does do something very commendable at the beginning of this chapter. He runs to where the priest of is in the place of Nob. And just as he did in chapter 19, he ran to Samuel and ultimately he was running to the protection of God. That is what David does right at the start here. Things are changing. Things are uncertain. He has no physical safety. He goes to God. This is as commendable now as it was when David did it back in chapter 19. It's as wise a choice to go to this priest as it was back when he went to Samuel. He goes to Nob where Ahimelech was the priest. Now, well, we could easily just read through the backwards and forwards of this discussion that takes place. Since chapter 16, There's also been an element of tension which has been brought brought to our attention, drawn out by the author. Uh, People who... uh, When people see those who are not in Saul's favour, there is a sense of fear. Will engaging with this person be seen as treason? There's a fearfulness that accompanies this. We've seen it in the people's response to Samuel in chapter 16. We clearly see it here now. Whether... All of Israel at this point in time was looking for David, whether there'd been a, a warrant issued on behalf of the king or whether word had quietly leaked out of the palace. We're hearing that a bit in the news these days, aren't we? And the news may quietly leaked out of the palace that David was a wanted man by the king. the people seem to know, to some degree at least, that David is on Saul's hit list. Clearly there is some knowledge about David's current standing before Saul being known because we see fear being mentioned by the author here. And Ahimelech, in verse 1, was afraid when he met David. Ahimelech was afraid when he met David perhaps even at this place of worship, perhaps even going to the place where God's people are meant to meet with God, and where while David had made mistakes, he was still worthy in the the culture to come to this place, perhaps even these doors are going to be closed on him. Whether David is having those things running through his head, whether he is just picking up on the fear and the, the sense of afraidness that Ahimelech puts forward and Ahimelech's asking him why he's there, David seems to go straight into survival mode in verse 2. I'm here on I'm here in the king's business. I'm here on the king's business. It would be really great if we just didn't talk about it anymore. Just Let's keep this on a down low. The king sent me here, I want some business for him. It's all good, but it's not all good. Because as with last week, when David and Jonathan come up with that plan to tell Saul that David had gone to Bethlehem to spend that feast with his family, this is a lie. David is telling a lie. We, we, We can't beat around the bush on that. And as we see here, there are some character flaws beginning to emerge with David. Now, we don't need to tar him with a bad brush entirely at this point in time, but we do need to be realistic. With David, there are both good things and bad things taking place. We know that the, from verse, chapter 16, God's spirit was still with him. That hasn't been removed. We would have been informed if that had been the case. That is good. David is still showing himself in most situations to be capable and to be wise. He has run to the temple. He is finding protection with God, that is good. But David's wisdom put on display here is not godly wisdom; it's earthless. What can I say to convince this priest to let me in? Now, the author doesn't draw more on this topic yet. Now, we we need to wait and see how how this character flaw will develop and how great an impact this will have. don't see the full scope of it yet, but as with Saul early on, we we see some red flags being brought to our attention. A few things where we're going, doesn't seem great. There's good stuff there, but just doesn't really seem as fantastic as it could be. And as an aside, as an aside, uh, one of the big reasons why we see so many flaws in these characters is that they were real people. They were real people. They were broken, sinful people. And another big reason is it shows us that we can't trust in these guys. While they may at times have take on uh, messianic characteristics or do things to save Israel, they are not the ultimate saviour. And it makes Jesus Christ stand out all that more, doesn't it, when we see him through the Gospels. See, we're seeing real people here who make mistakes. David has told a lie to this priest. Now, as I said, the author simply leaves it there. It's something to to follow as we proceed through the narrative. But David's here. He's in Nob, he's talking to Ahimelech, and he's hungry. Now, it seems as if this is just continuing straight on from last week. David has hidden a field for three days... And apparently he's just legged it straight to this place. He's probably starving right about now. And he, he, he wants some food. While he, well, it comes across in the English as being quite, give it to me, uh, it's quite likely that it was put this way as a request within the Hebrew language. So David's saying, oh, I'd like some food, can you give me some bread? And the priest replies, Ahimelech replies that there is only showbread which has been consecrated. Now, it's part of the bread that only the priest could eat, but this particular showbread was put before the altar. It's only for the priest to handle, it would only be for the priest to eat this consecrated bread, and this showbread wasn't even to be eaten. I mean, it's in some ways, it's a pretty big ask. And if it's only for the priests to touch, to handle, to make, to eat... Maybe David is stepping over lines that he shouldn't be stepping over. Maybe David, in asking for this bread, is stepping in to take on a priestly role that he has no right to take on. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul offered a sacrifice. Now, we could argue the intent of what Saul did, and arguably, the intent of what Saul did was good. He was trying to keep the army of Israel together. But Saul assumed that he stepped into the role of a priest. He assumed the role of a priestly function in doing this. And it had terribly grievous consequences for him. Now, the, a question here, a good question to be asked is, if it was wrong for Saul to step over that lines, is it double standards that David might be able to do this? Particularly if we remember uh, through the book of Isaiah, uh, one of the kings, King Uzziah, he assumed the priestly role as well and he suffered very serious consequences for that too. Those who would defend Saul to the hilt through this narrative say, God is just playing favourites. God just likes David more than Saul. Saul is too handsome, Saul is too tall God just has tall poppy syndrome. Bring him down a notch. He's just playing favourites. We might dismiss that offhand, but these are the sorts of things we should be thinking about as these themes through this uh, real story unfold. But as we see, David, despite the lie, which again, wrong, ungodly, not what faithful believers of God should be doing, he does not assume any priestly function. He does not seek to lead God's people in worship as their priests as their role. He's, as we might say today, he's just a hungry fella keen for a feed. He'd like some bread. And the priest, the explains to us there why giving this bread to David is permissible. It is a showbread to be set before the altar. But it's been taken away from the altar and hot bread has been put in its place. He uses, Ahimelech that is, Ahimelech uses his priestly role to share the food that he as a priest was entitled to do with. He shares it with David. Now while this doesn't do anything to solve David's problem as a fugitive... He still is. He he very much is still a fugitive. It it, it does show us that the priest had a desire to protect David. Now, whether he knew that David was the anointed, we don't know. But through housing and through feeding David, it's reflective of of a greater protection that God's people have with him. And not only that, in these first nine verses of chapter 21, David receives a weapon. He, He wants something to defend himself with. Have you got a sword? Have you got a spear here? pretty good question to ask it's a temple though, it's not really a place of war, warriors weren't trained there but they do happen to have a sword on hand and it's Goliath's sword now David's probably buffed up a bit since he killed Goliath where he could barely lift it last time, now he seems to be able to use it, how well we don't know but that's beside the point he now has Goliath's sword and he says there's none like it and that is true Who else would have a sword that big? We see the proportions of Goliath given to us. I believe the mark is down on the, the corner of the church. For anyone to look, there's a pink mark. That corner of the church, I'm pointing the wrong way. Down that corner of the church, down the back, there's a mark which shows how tall Goliath was, about nine feet. He's a monster. He needs a big sword. There is no other sword like it. But more than just the physical no other sword like it here, Consider what happened when David killed Goliath. It it is a wonderful provision physically. But what bigger reminder could David have of the the victory of his God who he put his trust in? This fearsome warrior Goliath who had trained for war since he was a boy had been killed by David with a slingshot. That was... As David said, God doing that. David didn't run towards Goliath thinking he was going to win. He ran towards Goliath knowing he was an instrument in the Redeemer's hand, knowing that God was the one who won that battle. What greater reminder, what bigger reminder could David carry with him in his danger than this sword of his largest enemy as a reminder of the faith of God, the faith he had in God and how wonderful God was at protecting his people. It's another wonderful provision from the priest, Ahimelech. Perhaps things are are going well despite the dishonesty, but it's not all smooth sailing. We read in those verses that a man called Doeg was there too. He was a chief herdsman of Saul. Now, the uh, the monarchs of the day would have these chief herdsmen to look after the flocks. Now, it's not a a super prominent role. It wasn't a role that had a, a, a courtly function, But it was a role where Doeg had, in some circumstances, immediate access to King Saul. He's been detained. Uh, We're not sure why he was detained. There's a lot of speculation, perhaps. The vow that he was there to offer up had taken a little bit longer than expected. For whatever reason, Doeg is there at this point in time. And he sees David. And... This into our reading for next week in chapter 22 verse 9 he tells Saul that David was there not all smooth sailing now we'll deal with this a bit more next week but just so we don't try and character assassinate Doeg too soon is Doeg telling Saul that David was at this place where he, in Nob with Ahimelech is that the wrong thing for him to do it's not really He does have a responsibility to the king. Saul is still the rightful king. At this point in time, we shouldn't be too hard on Doeg. We'll save that for chapter 22, verse 18. That's really not good. See, we get this introduction in some ways. The start of chapter 21, these first nine verses where... It's a bit of a head-scratcher in some ways. Is this good or is it bad? David's gone to where the priests are. He's found protection with God. That's good. David's lied. That's really bad. Doeg, who's going to report to Saul, is there? I mean, is that good or is it bad? It seems like there's this uncertainty continuing within this narrative of how are things actually going to land? And while there's been provision, we realise that even in the house of God, David doesn't feel safe. Now, that's not a reflection on God. That's a reflection on where David is at this point in time. Chapter 20 is a, a low point, but he's got the support of Jonathan. Just now, he's been incredibly graciously granted this showbread, normally reserved just for the priests. But then as we see our second point as we move on to verse 10 on in this chapter... David does this startling scamper. It's not unlike the one that Elijah would do just a little bit down the track in Israel's history. In Elijah's case, in some ways you could argue it was a bigger demonstration of God's power where all of those prophets of Baal were killed by Elijah when even over that wet stone God had burnt it and the, even the stones melted God did something absolutely amazing and wonderful and just beyond human belief only for the man who was saying they were trusting God into that situation and not just saying it they genuinely trusted God to apparently just crack under the pressure and leg it Elijah has probably the the biggest meltdown within scriptures in that regard now, I don't think David's all that far behind here he has received so many blessings from God. God has protected him from thugs in his house. When he is with Samuel, God has granted him provision and protection. we hear with Ahimelech. But David sees this Doeg and he's off. He takes off. He leaves Israel. Now think about that. David left Israel. David was not king yet. But David had been anointed to be the king of Israel, and he abandons those people to Saul. He left. Again, as with his lie, he is trusting in his own wisdom and what he can do to save himself, despite being the direct recipient of God's provision and protection and even direction so many times already. So, David leaves Israel. And he goes to find refuge in another country. Remember what David's been doing? He's been playing the harp to soothe the king, but he's a commander of Israel's armies. He has been leading men in battle against Israel's enemies, against the nations around Israel. Maybe we read this, why on earth would he think he's going to be safe with them? It's not normal for us for this to happen. Countries today have terrorist watch lists to prevent this sort of thing from happening. And David would be public enemy number one in most of the countries around. But even more so, when we see where he went. He goes to Gap. Say what? Gath is one of the five main provinces in Philistine. Gath is where Goliath is from. Remember who killed Goliath? The champion of this province? David. He is not popular there. But he goes there. And in some ways, what makes it worse, humanly speaking, is he's carrying with him Goliath's sword. Hey guys, remember me? I'm David. I killed your champion. I have his sword right here with me. It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would he do this? The commentary written by uh, Jamison, Fawcett and Brown speaks to this. I think they explain it really well. They talk about Gath being one of these five main regions or provinces in the Philistine lands. They're not pushovers in a political sense. They're powerful people. Presumably, the Philistine army that had almost crushed Israel came primarily from this region. They are a fierce people, they are a powerful people. As we said, David is public enemy number one. He's at the top of their terrorist watch list. Why go there? Well, it's a different culture, isn't it? You see, it wasn't abnormal for a great man, a man such as David, to find refuge when their lives were in threat with foreign princes. Even if they were hated by the people they fled to, foreign princes would often give them sanctuary for a time. And a a reason they did this, because there is a reason. It's not just something they did and everyone accepted it as the done thing. The reason they did this was that it removed a potentially powerful tool from an opposing leader. In this case, if David is in Gath, he cannot be used by Saul to win any battles against them. There is a selfishness to this. It might not make an awful lot of sense in our ears today, but this is why David found some safety there. But again, why Gath? Achish, the, the guy who's in, in charge of Gath, seems to be doing what was normal at the time for a foreign prince to to harbour such a person as David. But within this, as always, there is not just the the physical stuff going on. I think there's a a spiritual reminders here. Even though David has abandoned his people, even though David has run away, even though David is arguably at an incredibly low spiritual, emotional and physical point, even though he doesn't seem to be acting particularly faithfully, God still protects him. It's not really Achish who grants David safety here. God still has his hand on his servant. Even through this meltdown David's having, God is still with him. God is still protecting him. And while we don't see detail here, it seems as if David has far greater freedoms in Gath than most people in this situation would have. And you might be wondering, as we read through this, why did the people of Gath say that David is the king of the land? Well, kings in that time proved themselves by their worth in battle. There was a succession plan, normally through families. But if a prince was entirely unable to win a battle, they wouldn't be the next king. This is why later on in Israel's history, God uses it. But there is a time where the king of of Babylon coming against Israel, uh, they come against Israel at one time, and then about 30 years later, that king returns because his father died. And God used that to preserve Israel, to grant them a continued time to return to Him. But this king's father died; he returned, he fought more wars, proved himself, was coronated, and then thirty years later came back and completed the destruction of Israel, took Israel into captivity, into exile. At that point in time, you see this song they sing, this reminder of again the time when David had killed their own champion, Saul had slain his thousands, and David his tens, ten thousands. Basically, saying David's probably more worthy to be king than Saul. This is a king that we're dealing with here. Again, God is wonderful in His protection of David, given all of this. Although David doesn't quite recognize it, see, so he hears the people saying these things, and it seems to be he himself becomes fearful, and he goes to that acting the the role of a madman. Now, we see two things told to us there that David does. He scratched at doors and he drooled in his beard. Now, for us, maybe the scratching at the door one is more concerning. In our society, we politely overlook somebody who perhaps struggles with uh, saliva issues. We understand those things. But back then, it's the other way around. The drooling in his beard was a far worse thing to happen in those eastern cultures. David acted the role of someone who'd lost their faculties. He acted insane. Saliva fell in his beard. And the reason this is a problem is that in those eastern societies is you did not let your beard get dirty like that. You just didn't. It went so far as to be an intolerable insult an unbearably intolerable, intolerable thing to happen. You didn't let people do this to you. And if you let it happen to yourself, you were intolerably insulting yourself. And looking at David going, this guy has completely lost the plot. And the, key, uh, the, the, the prince here, Achish, he, he recognizes this. What's this guy doing? What real benefit do I have from him being here? You see, David had turned to his own cunning, his own wisdom to try and protect himself, to try and make himself look harmless to the Philistines, but what actually happened was he worked against himself. If he'd actually been a capable man, politically Achish would have had a reason to keep him there. If he's a madman, what on earth is Achish doing giving him harbour? He's got no reason to keep David. David not trusting God and trusting his own wisdom. And trusting his own acting abilities actually works against him in not very good ways here. And fear once more comes on David. He flees. He runs away again. Now, last week I said in some ways with uh, the events David is going through, it's like those stories we hear of people and we go, can it get any worse? It kept getting worse last week keeps getting worse through chapter 21. As we come to our third point and we look at these first five verses of chapter 22 I actually see things beginning to get back on track. We see David departing from this place and he, he went to the cave of Abdullam and his brothers and all of his father's house heard of it and they came down to him there. Now for a lot of what we've seen over the last few chapters, the, uh, the author of this, le- of this book has wanted us to focus more on individual characters. We've seen a lot of David, of Jonathan, of Saul, uh, those sorts of situations. And we haven't really seen a whole heap of how Israel as a nation was faring. Uh, at the start of 22, it seems as if they're in as bad a spot as, uh, as David is. We see the sort of people listed here. Verse 2. And everyone who was is along with his brothers in his father's house coming to David. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Distress death, discontented. It's not good. These people come to David. But where things do begin to get back on track is, so he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him. And where it gets even more back on track is David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. So again, not in Israelite lands, perhaps we have problems, but we see him seemingly beginning to realise his need for God, his dependence on God. He goes to this place and he goes there saying that he's waiting for God to tell him what to do. Tell him, know what God will do for me. Not only what God wants him to do, but wait to see what God is going to do for him. For his people, for his children, you see, it's not much we see in these first five verses. But after what seems like a long downhill slope, we've been going on, things begin to pick up a bit. The the, the tone changes a little bit. It's not smooth. It, it's not going to be smooth sailing. We see the fear of Ahimelech that David, who's an enemy of Saul, would come to him. In some ways, David uh, gathering these people to him and God really leading these people to David creates a second political pull within the nation of Israel that is exactly what Saul feared. It's not going to be smooth. There's going to be people torn one way and another between Saul and David. It's now a very public thing. But God is using... David, who is a, a clearly broken man, to give hope. God is using David to give hope to those who are in distress. To give hope to those in debt. To give hope to those who are discontented. It is hopefulness of a, a healthy Godly uniting of the people, even if the road ahead is going to be tough. And then at the end of verse 5, the prophet Gad, not a pagan prophet, an Israelite, who God was speaking through, he comes. And he talks to David and he gives David instructions to leave and to go to Judah, possibly where our call to worship was written this morning. See, God is speaking to and using David. He's gone through this massive meltdown, but God is still with him. How amazing is that? To see someone who has messed up so badly and God still uses him for his purposes. Matthew Henry says this. That's a short quote. Dropped some long ones, sorry. I apologise that recently. But this is a short one. This is what Matthew Henry says. See what weak instruments God uses for his purposes. See what weak instruments God uses for his purposes. Now it's easier for us to sit here and point the finger at David. But have you ever messed up in your faith? I have. I'm sure you have. David did. David lied. David ran away. David acted like a madman because he wasn't fully trusting God. God is not able to do wondrous things because we are good, amazing, virtuous people in and of ourselves. God is does incredible things because he is God. We have hope for Israel here, and look at the people that God is calling here. He calls some unlikely people. He calls people in debt. Now, we don't know if this is mismanagement of funds or just hardship that they've fallen upon, but they're battling. Those who are distressed, those who are discontented, It doesn't seem like the most likely group of people that God would use. But God is calling these people to himself. He places them under David, with David as their captain, and he is making them a holy people. Does that maybe ring a bell for you? Were we not all spiritually distressed? Spiritually indebted and spiritually discontented people before God called us to Himself? God does not require us to meet certain KPIs or performance reviews before He can use us for His purposes. He calls us out of darkness. He redeems us. He saves us. He delivers us from sin. He makes us holy. He does all the work and we are to respond with joy and with thankfulness in our hearts. For Israel, there are, there are clear problems ahead of them. For us today, we face uncertainties of our own. We face hardships ahead of us. but there is hope with God. There is hope in the work that God does. Israel have a long way to go. We get to the end of chapter 22, verse 5, and we almost finish with a a watch this space. It's not a a watch this space in, let's see how bad this is going to go. We're not watching a train wreck anymore. We can't turn our eyes away, but we just see everything happening and it's horrible. We see something which has been to a terrible place, but God is working. Isn't that true for us as well? We go through hardships. We struggle in our faith. We don't always act the way that we would like to act. But we are still God's. Let's see what amazing things God will do both in 1 Samuel as it continues. And let's see and anticipate joyfully the incredible things that God does, is doing, and will do among us as we continue to grow together in him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that through all of the darkness, through all of the doubts, through all of the hopelessness, that you are still God. We thank you that you have called an unlikely people to yourselves, both through the pages of Scripture and today as well. We thank you that you continue to work in your people, that you refine us, that you shape us, and you redeem us. We pray that you would continue this work in us. We pray that we would not seek to live in our own wisdom, that we would not seek to clever our own way out of situations, but that we might seek your wisdom above all, that we might know you are with us in all that we do, and that we might walk closely, faithfully, and obedient with us as we look forward to seeing with joyful anticipation the work that you will continue to do among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.